The following contains content that is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. The Devil and Mrs. Trembley Written by Craig Moody Narrated by Jessica Caruso Cimarron County, Oklahoma, 1933 1. I loved Edgar since I was 15 years old. At age 30, my love for him had never strayed, never dwindled, and never faded. Edgar was 37. Like so many in our community, we had met at church. He had inherited our farm from his parents, both of whom had passed on, and we married after less than two months of courtship. My daddy had been eager to free himself of one of the twelve mouths he had to feed, but my mama felt I was too young and immature to be a wife, much less a mother. Perhaps mama was right. I was a wife of fifteen years, but a mother of never. The Lord had yet to bless me with children, and as each year passed with childless monotony, I feared the blessing of motherhood would never find me. Edgar was patient, although I knew he wanted children, boys especially. He needed help on the farm, and he wanted someone to leave everything to once we had passed on. My daddy died just a few short years after I married Edgar, and Mama moved off to live with my sister Beverly out in California. Beverly had done well for herself. She married a doctor not long after running off to the West Coast. Most of Mama's children were either married, dead, or unheard from. Like fall leaves in the wind, her babies had scattered across the country in every direction imaginable. I didn't keep in touch with any of my kin. Not even Mama. We had just grown apart over the years, and Edgar and I were far too poor to even imagine making a trip out to California. I envied Beverly and her life of luxury. I envied that she got to have Mama all to herself while the rest of us, the siblings I still knew of, relied on the land to provide our supper. The first years on the farm were profitable. Edgar grew everything from tobacco and wheat to corn and various greens. Anything and everything that could be sold was grown and shipped off. Edgar did everything on his own. He never hired help, nor did he allow me to work in the sun. I stayed indoors most of the time, cooking and cleaning, dreaming of his babies. The babies that had yet to come and the babies we both feared would never come. Edgar treated me right. We hardly fought, and when we did, we were over at by supper. We spent our evenings listening to the radio, the sounds of the Opry ringing from the Ryman Walls in Nashville, or the voice of President Roosevelt echoing from the Grand Halls of Washington. I would knit while Edgar chewed or smoked his tobacco. Edgar and I didn't speak much anymore. The days were hard and cruel, and the nights long and worrisome. The great crash of 29 had made crop prices fall by more than half, and on top of that the soil had begun to dry and harden. The rains hardly came, and when they did, they did little more than just roll over the dirt like dew on glass.
Edgar never complained, but he worried something awful. Over the course of the last four or five years, I had watched his handsome face age and wither into a man's decades his senior. Edgar's health was a source of relentless concern for me. I didn't want to lose him young like my mama had lost our daddy. Seeing Edgar lowered into the dry Oklahoma earth would certainly be my own invitation to the grave. Jefferson said there might be a storm coming, Edgar said softly as he eased his hunched and tired body through the front screen door. Of course, Jefferson is hardly ever right about a damn thing. How's Molly? I asked, curious about our neighbor's wife. Molly Jefferson was what I could best describe as an eccentric. She was always reading books about odd, ungodly things such as the occult or fortune-telling. To be honest, her interests scared me, yet I couldn't help but feel just a slight bit intrigued. Edgar didn't know it, but one night while he was off at a trade exchange meeting in Boers City, Molly had read my fortune. Molly's eyes widened with terror as she told me of the awful tragedy that she saw in her colorful cards. Of course, I didn't believe a word of it, but her warning still haunted my memory. The most awful of storms is coming, Molly had declared, wide-eyed and panicked. Just awful, Edith, like nothing no man has ever seen. It comes right for you and Edgar, straight over the farm and your house. She dropped her eyes back to the cards before lifting them again to mine. It comes right for you. Fine, I guess. Edgar replied, snapping me from the echoes of my thoughts and back into the present moment. Jefferson didn't say. I smiled and nodded. Dinner will be ready in less than an hour, Edgar. Why don't you go wash up? I watched as the only man I had ever loved climbed the staircase like a bent and broken mule. I waited several minutes before pulling the small roast from the gas oven, ensuring that the corn was still boiling. I trekked up the stairs and into the bedroom. I saw Edgar, his back to me, his body naked and exposed. I watched as he wiped himself at the water basin, running an old rag over his face, under his arms and between his legs. Despite the age in his face, Edgar's body still represented a man in the final years of his youth. Although we had been making love for years, the darkness of the room usually prevented me from taking in the sight of my husband's naked flesh. For whatever reason, I now found myself longing for his skin and craving his touch. Sensing my presence, Edgar turned around. His face frowned and motionless his naked skin glowing in the dim light of the nearby lantern. Dinner is ready, I whispered a bit breathless with embarrassment. I, Edgar mumbled, his hand grazing his manhood. I felt my flesh prickle with excitement. Flushed, I turned toward the stairs and bolted to the kitchen. We ate in silence that night as we always did, Beside the sound of Edgar clearing his throat or spitting his tobacco, not a sound filled the air, aside from the muffled hum of the outside night bugs or the soft crackle of the lightly lit fireplace. I knitted in silence, subconsciously counting my breaths, clear and aware 
that some part of me actually wished for the storm Molly had warned me of. Sundays were the only days I would leave the house. Edgar would always drive me to church, but he would never venture inside. Even though we had met at church some fifteen years ago, he now avoided the place like the plague. He would wait in his truck, usually napping until the service was through and I had returned to the vehicle. He would never ask what the preacher had said or what any of our neighbors were up to. Edgar used to be far more social. In fact, he used to be downright charming. But in recent years, with the fall of the crop prices and drying of the land, he had become far more withdrawn and suspicious. In fact, aside from Bill Jefferson, he hardly spoke to anyone at all. Thought I heard thunder. Edgar mumbled through his tobacco-filled mouth as I piled into the truck after a Sunday service. Guess not, though. I nodded, but kept my head in the direction of the road. All Edgar would speak of these days, when he spoke at all, was of the damn weather. He was utterly obsessed with rain and the lack of it. Sometimes I wished it would rain, not just because we needed it so badly, but because it would finally shut him up about it. I would give anything to have him talk about something else, anything else other than his constant hope for rain. I tried to initiate lovemaking that night. I slid my hand over Edgar's exposed thigh, but he didn't budge. I couldn't tell if he was already asleep or just ignoring me. Over the last year especially, his interest in lovemaking had waned to a mere trickle. Where we used to fill consecutive nights with bouts of passion, both in hope of conceiving and pure carnal lust, we now only dampened our bedsheets on the rare special occasion like a birthday or anniversary. Months would pass by without our flesh ever connecting. I despised Edgar for it as much as I lamented what had been lost. In the silence of my stillness, I never uttered a word. It was early spring 1933 when Edgar hurt his back. He was late coming in for supper, so I ventured the fields until I found him, lying on the ground, moaning in agony. It took all my strength to lift and assist him to the front porch. We didn't have money for a doctor, so Edgar just dealt with the pain. He cried in the night, tears of sheer suffering. Not only was he in physical pain, but also his injury meant he would not be able to till and plow per usual, causing him even more mental anguish than before. I did my best to heed his instructions and run the farm equipment on my own, but after just one afternoon of me running over fresh crops and dropping hand tools left and right, Edgar called for help. Within a day and a half, Bill Jefferson arrived with Joe D'Angelo, the eldest son of the only Italian family in town. Joe here is ready for his own farm, Ed, Bill announced as he led the way up the front porch steps. His pop hates to lose him, but he understands the condition you're in. He knows you'll starve come winter if you don't keep atop the crops. 
Edgar only stared at Joe. A strikingly handsome young man with chiseled film star features. I felt myself flush with embarrassment as my eyes trailed the length of his tall and lean body. His youth and athleticism bulged through his clothing, leaving little to the imagination. And in fact, his clothing was far too small for his frame. I knew the D'Angelo's were quite poor, poorer than most in Cimarron County. Although the family had been in Oklahoma well over 50 years, they were still considered outcasts and foreigners. Most Oklahonans didn't take too kindly to anyone not born and bred in the plains, much less anyone not Protestant. The D'Angelo's were the only Catholics in the county. They were the only Catholics I had ever heard of. Much obliged, Mr. Trumbly, Joe said, smiling, reaching for Edgar's hand. Edgar didn't budge. He didn't take his eyes off Joe, nor did he offer his hand in return. After a long and awkward silence, Joe returned his hand to his pocket, his discomfort and embarrassment clear and apparent. I ain't got nothing to pay this boy with, Edgar mumbled to Bill Jefferson. We know, Ed, that's why the boys agreed to work through the fall when you sell your crop. He's been promised a payment from your annual income. Edgar just glared, abundantly annoyed with the entire situation. I knew Edgar didn't have anything against young Joe personally. He just hated the fact that he was unable to tend to his own fields. Edgar lived for his farm. Every blade of grass or pathetic crop was his child or kin. In fact, if I were to be honest, I was jealous of the time and care he took with his produce. Even when times were good, the crops selling at full price and the dirt productive and fertile, Edgar gave more of his time, affection, and tenderness to the land around our farmhouse than he ever did my body, even when our lovemaking was more passionate and regular. Fine. Edgar spat into his tin cup. Get on the tractor. I watched from the kitchen window as Edgar hobbled behind Joe, barking orders and insults at the poor boy. Joe was silent and obedient. He did whatever Edgar asked of him. It was clear the young boy had grown up on a farm. Truth be told, he was more natural and graceful about the farm work than even Edgar. I know Edgar noticed, and it only added annoyance to his overall rage. Joe moved into our downstairs bedroom. As the weeks wore on, I would hear the young man crying from his bed. Although he was nearly 20 years old, he still cried for his mama like a boy of three. I both envied and sympathized for the poor young man. As a woman of 30, I still cried for my mama, regretful and mournful that she still breathed the air of this world, yet we had absolutely no relationship. The boy needs some new clothes, Edith, Edgar announced one morning at breakfast. I looked over at Joe, who, per usual, kept his head down toward his meal. Well, I ain't got no, 
Just alter some of my old shirts and trousers. You can use the fabric of what he's got on for extra material. Poor Joe only had two pairs of shirts and one pair of pants to his name. He would wash and wring them out at night, hanging them to dry at the end of his bedpost. I wasn't certain, but I didn't believe he owned any undergarments at all. I could see the shape and size of his large manhood as it slumped lazily against the top of his right leg. I would catch myself gazing at it far longer than I should. Edgar had noticed my lingering glance once and made it a point to keep the boy busier than ever. Since that moment, I only saw Joe first thing in the morning at breakfast, just before the sun rose, and long after sundown. He no longer ate with us. Instead, I would leave him a plate in the icebox. Once done with his daily work, he would fetch it and eat alone in the kitchen. Soon after, he would shuffle off to his bedroom, close the door, and cry himself to sleep. This went on for months. Spring warmed into summer, and the ongoing drought only worsened. Edgar still rambled on about phantom rain, massive thunderstorms that never came. Slowly, Edgar's back had begun to heal, and he was able to assist Joe more than before. Still, without Joe, there was absolutely no way Edgar could handle the farm work on his own. As Bill Jefferson had warned, we would surely perish in the winter without the boy's help. My only chore outside the house was tending to a small coop of chickens in the backyard. We didn't have cows or pigs like most farms, only chickens. What meats we consumed outside of poultry were bartered or bought from neighboring farms. As Edgar's discontent only harshened, we slowly started to exist solely on chicken, eggs, and vegetables. The relentless summer was starting to take its toll. Every day I would find at least one or two of our dozens of chickens dead from heat stroke. I would never tell Edgar. I would just strip the carcass of feathers and prepare the flesh for supper. If the weather didn't give before long, I knew our entire coop would soon be depleted. The first time I saw Joe without his clothes on was the night he tried on the altered garments I had sewn for him. After I presented him with two pairs of Edgar's old trousers, the young man moved just beyond the kitchen doorway to put them on. Although I turned my head, I couldn't help but sneak a peek at the attractive male body that inhabited the downstairs of my home. In the slight opening of the door, I saw Joe's backside firm and rippled with muscles. Blood rushed to my face when he turned, the darkness of hair surrounding his manhood thicker and more pronounced than Edgar's. He was also far larger than Edgar in so many more ways than one. The image of Joe's naked skin stayed with me for the entirety of that day. Then the next day, also the next. Late on the third night, I felt myself grow moist at the thought of him his young, firm flesh bulging and rippling in its attractive youthfulness. The years on the farm had made him a steed-like specimen. He was as strong as an ox and as handsome as any Hollywood star I had seen photographs of. 
Perhaps Edgar sensed my razzle, for he moved over me in the darkness, pounding himself into me like a piece of machinery. In fact, given his bad back, he was far more forceful and agile than I would have expected. I heard the bedroom door creak, and though I couldn't be certain, I swore I saw Joe's face peering through the open doorway in the dim light of the quarter moon. The thought of him watching us did not shame nor embarrass me. If anything, it only heated me more, allowing me to climax several times under Edgar's forceful thrusting. My lands, Edith, Molly Jefferson exclaimed as she made her way up the front porch steps. I ain't seen you in ages, Molly. I smiled, embracing my neighbor in my arms. As much as Molly amused and bewildered me, she was also my only true female companion. The women at church didn't pay me much mind. I think Edgar's refusal to enter the building was strange and off-putting to them. Bill and Molly Jefferson didn't attend church, so there was no air of gossip or scandal to keep them from our porch steps. Bill is out with Ed and that Italian boy. Molly stated breathlessly as she finally summited the four porch steps. That boy is quite the looker. I smiled shyly as I watched Molly work to catch her breath. Molly was large. Her build was easily over six foot. She towered over Edgar, even Bill. Only Joe stood taller. She wasn't overweight, just large. Her frame was broad and masculine. Her shoulders were twice the size of Edgar's. I brought my cards, Molly whispered, popping open her small handbag. I know it's been a while. I figured it was time to give you an update. The sight of the cards caused my stomach to twist and turn. Their very presence made me uncomfortable and downright frightened. I poured Molly a glass of water as she spread her cards over the small kitchen table. I peered nervously out the kitchen window. I couldn't see nor hear the men, so I figured they were far out in the fields and would not happen upon us unexpectedly. I assumed Bill knew of Molly's interest in the cards and whatnot, but I knew Edgar would be highly disapproving if he caught sight of them. Although Edgar was by no means spiritual or religious, he was not keen on anything fanciful or exotic. He didn't even like for me to listen to dramas that would play out on the radio. Unless it was the Opry, the President, or the Weather Report, we were not allowed to listen to it. His strict adherence to boredom was yet another reason I was growing to resent my husband. Sit, woman, Molly directed. I ain't got all day. I watched as Molly muttered to herself as she worked the cards into separate piles on the table. Her face began to change as she started flipping them over. I can't believe it, she whispered half in a panic. What? I asked once she failed to say more. The storm, she started. That same awful storm, it's all I see. I heard myself chuckle. What? Molly questioned, her face slightly puzzled. I hope it does come, I answered plainly. Especially for old Edgar's sake, 
I know we all need the rain, but that man has been nothing but fixated on rain for the last year or more. I hope it comes and floods this whole damn county. I stopped smiling when I realized Molly was not matching my humor. This is no normal storm, Edith, she uttered. This storm is dry. No rain, nothing but earth and darkness. She flipped another card and gasped. Oh, my, she said, leaning back in her chair. What is it? I asked, moving forward to get a better view of the card. Molly spoke the name of the card at the same time as my eyes registered the image and wording. The devil. I tried hard to erase the image of the devil on Molly's tarot card from my brain. The dark, sinister illustration haunted me for weeks. The wide-eyed staring face, the winding horns and bat-like wings, the fur-covered legs that ended with perched talons. It stayed with me throughout my every waking hour and even infiltrated my dreams. I would see the image, alive and animated, moving through the backfields of the farm, just walking, creeping, or standing still, but always staring. Never once did the eyes of the devil remove themselves from mine. Even in the midst of a dream, I could feel the creature peering directly into my soul. Hi, I'm Craig Moody, and I want to thank you for listening to Craig Moody's Novel Bites. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast to be notified when the latest episodes are released. Print and digital editions of my previous titles are available through all major retailers. For more information or for links to my social media, please visit craig-moody.com. Until next time.